The holiday season is now upon us. The year is absolutely flying by, and the news never stops. That's why we at the DSR Network have expanded our programming to cover even more of the world's events. We hope you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of November, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code STUFFING at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code STUFFING. Thank you very much for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode in a special limited series of podcasts from the DSR Network. No issue is more important to the world than climate change. Later this year, world leaders will gather in Dubai for COP28, the most important international summit at which critical climate issues are discussed. This series of podcasts will look at the crucial issues to be discussed at COP28 from the perspective of leading experts from around the world. Each of the podcasts will feature elements from a series of five live expert roundtables we convene to explore the road to COP28 and beyond. Each of the roundtables are hosted by highly regarded leaders from the climate and international affairs communities. The discussions are presented as they happened, live and without editing. We were very fortunate to have as the chairperson of our roundtable discussion, Allison Agston, the director of the USC Annenberg Center for Climate Journalism and Communication and curator at the Wrigley Institute for Environment and Sustainability. This panel, entitled Arts, Activism, and Combating Climate Change, explores the role that artists and activists play in the fight against climate change and the ways everyone can do their part to create a more green future. This series of programs has been sponsored in part by a grant from the UAE Embassy in the United States. The UAE is the host nation of COP28. However, it should be noted for this, as for all DSR Network podcasts, All content is completely editorially independent, and each of the independent chair people of these roundtables have been solely responsible for the direction and substantive focus of the discussions. Now, on to the discussion, the latest in our special series, The Road to COP28. We hope you will join us each and every week from now through COP28 to hear more unique perspectives on this vital event and the issues to be discussed there. Thank you. 
Uh, welcome. I am Allison Agston, and I will be chairing today's virtual roundtable discussion, the fifth in the Road to COP28 series. Thanks to all of the experts who have joined for this conversation and to all of you who are listening via the DSR network. All right. I have to start by asking for a hot take for anybody who's skimmed the news yet today. You know it's a big day. The National Climate Assessment came out. Uh, anybody uh, chime in with some takeaways that they had? I covered it uh, this morning, so I, I could go if you if you like. Yeah, please. Um, uh, let's do um, Matt, Michael, and then Rob, please. Matt Simon, you are a writer at Wired. I am indeed. Uh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, yes, I covered this report this morning. This is a, um, a major national climate assessment, and I didn't have a real hot take uh, per se, but we covered it pretty straight, saying that um, you know there is a lot of doom and gloom. These uh, disasters are uh, accelerating in their severity. It's made very clear in this report. Um, so we uh, we published a story about how yes, the damage is bad. Uh, but there are ways outlined in this report going forward that we can massively reduce emissions. That's the mitigation side, but also increase adaptation. Um, so within cities and agriculture, these sorts of things. Um, I wish I had a hot take for you, but that is um, the straight news that we covered this morning. I mean, it's climate change. I guess maybe it's like hot. It is like literally a hot take. We're getting hotter. Um, Michael Mann, the Michael Mann. I actually said to myself, God, if I could only ask Michael Mann what qu one question, what would it be? And then like, I actually do get to ask Michael Mann one question. And I'm looking forward to that later. But uh, what are your thoughts? On well, thanks. Thanks for the kind uh, words. Um, so, you know, my hot take is that we can prevent it from getting hotter. Um, and uh, also released today, uh, not quite as much fanfare, was a, a major assessment by about two dozen of the leading scientists studying what's known as the zero emissions commitment. How much warming do we continue to get when we bring carbon emissions to zero? And I wrote a commentary for it and also an op-ed on live science. And the bottom line is that the science increasingly points towards the finding that when we stop putting carbon pollution into the atmosphere, the warming of the planet's surface stops almost immediately. Uh, so we can prevent it from getting worse by reducing carbon emissions. There is, on the one hand, the urgency that is communicated by the National Assessment Report, but there is also the agency or the efficacy that's communicated by this other report that we can prevent it from getting worse if we reduce carbon emissions quickly. And so there's urgency and there's agency, and that's what these two reports together communicate. There was actually, in fact, a, another report even today, Yale released its uh, International Climate Opinion Survey, which is really fascinating. And if you haven't had a chance to read it yet, uh, it seems like we are gaining traction on awareness about climate change. Uh, everybody's still not totally on board with climate change being man-made. Uh, tons of climate news. Rob Marciano we know you from the news, a very well-known um, meteorologist. It's so great to see you here. What do you think about all of this today? Hi, Allison. Uh, thanks for inviting me. This is a, a great group um, and uh, good to see Michael on. Uh, he's already given me some hope because I, I always had this impression uh, that there was this momentum. You know, once we stop, there's going to be this carryover where it will continue to get warm. But 
uh, that little tidbit, which I didn't catch in the latter two reports that were released today, um, it does give us some hope. So that's that's good. I guess a couple things from from this report versus 2018. This one was was ushered out uh, a week before Thanksgiving, which is a you know premier week of people eyeballs basically in the media. The last one in 2018 was ushered out on the Friday after Thanksgiving. So. Uh, that's when we bury things, you know, <laughs> any publicist will tell you that. So it's out there in the front, uh, front, um, uh, this, this, the startling stat that we kind of knew was there, but I didn't really see it monitor, uh, uh, quantified was the, uh, billion dollar disasters that we had every four months, roughly in the eighties. Now every three weeks in our country, which is just absolutely mind blowing. So it's costing us a lot of money. It's costing us, uh, lives and livelihood. Uh, I'm glad that, that uh, the administration is, is, is taking action, not just with the emphasis to curb uh, global emissions, and it does take a globe to do that, but to also, uh, you know, take some steps to adapt. We have to, we have to do both. And um, so I'm, I'm happy with what I saw today so far. Uh, Jennifer, your comments on any of the climate reports that came out today. Yeah. Hey, everyone. And thank you so much for inviting me to be here. Um, just following up on what Matt and Rob said that, you know, those reports are mainly filled with gloom and doom, but I think there is a, a silver lining that we could mention, especially in the context of, of what we're sort of discussing today, and that is communication. I think all of these extreme weather events that have been happening pretty much um, weekly and grabbing headlines for people all over the world, I think, have really captured the public's interest. And I think we're doing a much better job now in terms of uh, taking advantage of this opportunity while people are listening to inject a little uh, climate science to help people understand why some of these things are expected to happen more often, where the science is. Some of it is very clear. Some of it is, you know, still in the research phase. But I think it's it's been really helpful in getting the public more on board with understanding some of the reasons why this is happening because it's affecting so many people personally or their families personally or their communities personally. And it's a real communications opportunity, I think, and we're getting better at it. <laughs> Jennifer Francis is a senior scientist at Woodwell, by the way. And while you were saying that, I noticed a lot of people nodding their heads, like for example, Rosanna Shaw, LA Times writer who also has a new book out on oceans in California. I'm wondering, Rosanna, if you could tell us if you are seeing the same thing that Jennifer's mentioning, maybe uh, a shift based on people's personal experiences with weather this past summer or climate, if you will. Yeah, thank you, Allison. And it's truly incredible to see such a incredible gathering of experts and I think it's interesting because I have been in the last few months really thinking about the role of journalism and climate journalism. And the word storytelling has come up a lot. And so, you know, even just something simple as re reframing my talks as what it means to be a climate storyteller versus a climate communicator or a climate journalist has been really powerful. And Yes, the kind of I mean we've we've been thinking and we've been talking a lot about how the stories the stories we tell about climate change and our experience our personal experiences with climate change is what affects people what moves people more than the data right people remember um 
how they feel when they hear a story versus the data that you present to them. And the stories are definitely increasing in frequency. The extremes have been stunning, honestly. And I do think it's become easier to open a conversation with someone about climate change because there are just so many reference points in the kind of recent memory realm of stories that we can point to. So um, yeah, I would just say real simply that it's unfortunately become easier to open this conversation about climate change as a climate storyteller. And Jane Joyner, you have worked on this, um, as has my colleague Kate Fold from USC, who's here also in uh, the well-known Good Energy Playbook, which I know and reference often has some really great tips for climate storytellers. I am wondering if there is just one tip from that well-researched guide that you developed that you wish uh, climate communicators or storytellers would adopt. Like, what would that one thing be? Oh gosh, <laughs> one. Um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna cheat and go with two. I would say um, number one, we just need more character uh, character centric climate related stories. As, I mean, working especially in television and film, the cinematic. Uh, stories tend to be very character driven. And right now, most of the uh, journalism and other forms of storytelling is still very issue focused and less about the people. And so I would really love to see more IP um, that really, you know, talked about compelling characters. And within that, not just superheroes, like we what makes for really dynamic characters um, in most forms of storytelling is flawed characters. So being a, uh, vulnerable and open about talking about your vulnerabilities and humanities uh, or, and humanity and, and flaws and struggles is actually something that really draws audiences to you and, and opens up people's uh, ability to trust you and hear you as a storyteller. So those would be my two main ones. Kate, my colleague at USC, could you explain your very cool role and tell us the direction you're seeing climate stories going right now? Sure. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm a director of Hollywood Health and Society, which is a program at USC Annenberg Norman Lear Center. It's a big mouthful. Uh, we just say HHS. But um, our work uh, over nearly 25 years now um, has been to work with entertainment storytellers, narrative, TV, and film. Um, on uh, a variety of issues that affect our health and the health of our body politic. And certainly climate change is one of those and has been a focus of ours for nearly 15 years now. And I can say that 15 years ago, it was a whole different ballgame in, in terms of trying to get anybody to write about the issue, even get their heads around the issue. Um, so we spent the first uh, you know, five or six or maybe even eight years just helping writers understand the concept of climate change as this vast concept, but then funneling it down, as Anna Jane was saying, into telling a story about a character, about a person, because that's what resonates um, with viewers. And at the Norman Lear Center, we all also do research on the impact that storytelling has on audiences. And we've done tons of studies um, comparing, as you were mentioning, sort of a didactic uh, piece of content 
that has the same information that a narrative story has. And we find that audiences, you know, resonate much more with the story, with the characters. They're running through the woods, you know, to escape the zombies uh, with them and feel very much part of that. And if we can infuse important information around climate um, and its effect on health and, and everything else, um, it sits with the audience longer. So uh, in more recent years, uh, we've been working, thankfully, uh, just as it's uh, changed in, um, in news, it's also just starting to change in um, the entertainment industry where we're seeing more stories, more characters um, that are inclined either to this issue or maybe it's part of their role. Um, and so we have lots more to go, as you'll see in Anna Jane's, um, in her guide, uh, we did a study in collaboration with them to look at the the number of stories that dealt with climate change. And it was something like 2% or less even mentioned climate change. And then we go into whether it's the quality, you know, are they talking about it in a snarky way? Or are they talking about it in a, you know, serious way? And that was even less. And so there's lots of work to do, but I do feel like the tide is slowly starting to turn. Uh, yes, absolutely. Alexis, please chime in. I um, I made Manifest Destiny, which is a painting imagining uh, what climate change is going to do to New York City, which I started in 1999 and finished it in 2004. It's eight by 24 feet. And I really felt that if I could show the implications of what was going to happen, I would turn the world around. And boy, was I mistaken, because the week that it opened at the Brooklyn Museum. It's now in the Smithsonian. Day after tomorrow opened and really just ruined any type of serious conversation about it. So what I want to say is I've been trying ever since then to get film projects off the ground or limited series media. I went to Ridley Scott a couple of years after that, wasn't interested. I sold a project to Amazon. That's been installed. Um, I, I just want to say that because there's been no successes financially that deal with these issues, Scott Burns's very ambitious project uh, extrapolations that opened um, or dropped in the spring, which is really serious. He's a brilliant guy. Whatever its flaws, he had the best of intentions, and I applaud him for trying to do it. But there is no track record for these issues being successful, and that is the basically the problem. Well, I beg to differ a little bit yeah. on um, the day after tomorrow, because even though the depiction of <laughs> Anna Jane's gonna gonna as well on this, even though even though the depiction is clearly unrealistic and and all of that, it did impact audiences and it I actually there's sorry. Disagree. Yeah, well, I mean, there's research and um, Tony Lazarowitz at Yale has done some studies on that film. And even though, as I said, very flawed film, it did raise some awareness. But it, I agree with you. It's pretty much the only thing that has. I have um, to say that what we need is a China syndrome. Whatever we think of the nuclear industry, that is the thing, along with Three Mile Island, that destroyed the, the industry in 1978, 79. And... The fact that we can't get a great storyteller to deal with this is really the problem. I'm trying, and you know, believe me. 
Alexis, you well, really uh, lit up the raised hands. There are a lot of raised hands. Let's go to Anna Jane Joyner. And then after that, I'd like to hear from Layla Connors, who is a filmmaker and I'm sure we'll have a take. And then we'll get to Eliza and Michael. Yeah, I would just say um, that there there's very little uh, climate that shows up in scripted TV and film, uh, as Kate mentioned, that our research with USC shows. However, when it does show up, there is uh, quite a few examples now of commercially and creatively successful projects. Um, and I mean, Don't Look Up is the one that's always referenced because it was the best performing movie in Netflix history, which whether or not you loved Net uh, uh, Don't Look Up, just the fact that it did perform so well has really opened the doors to more of these kinds of stories within Hollywood. Um, but you have Beast of the Southern Wild. You have, a, a, you know, you have critically acclaimed stories at this point first reformed there there's quite a uh there's a growing number of great stories that have done creatively and commercially well within the industry that do tackle climate change and then just on, on extrapolations in particular we are working with USC's media impact project on studying the audience impact or, of um extrapolations and we have found that the research isn't public yet but we have definitely found that the audiences um, we're much more likely to take action as a result of watching the show than a neutral audience. So I do think we're seeing impact for sure. Before we get to Layla, I just want to chime in and say related to all of this, so much of the research that those of you in this room and outside of this room have done on the power of narrative storytelling, uh, I'm applying with uh, a variety of other uh, best practices from the literature on a podcast that I'm executive producing with our former provost at USC, Chip Zukowski, on the energy transition. And we have commissioned Lear to do some measurement on that. There's very little research on narrative storytelling, on climate storytelling at all in the podcasting world. So we'll do that. And we're going to make that um, public once the research is complete. You can expect our podcast, Electric Futures, on January 24th. Uh, Layla, and then after Layla, I want to go to Rebecca because I want to be conscious of her time, and then we might end up shifting gears. Layla, could you tell us your take? Yeah, hi everyone. Um, I'm. Some of you may know I moved to upstate New York, and I live in the woods now. And um, I have to tell you that the ecosystem of the mind of our country and the world, and I've been traveling a lot globally for the movie I'm making now. Um, the message has gotten through. I don't think you need like a three mile island movie to get people on side. We have everyone on side. I live in a very small town, mostly Republican, who already put solar on everything they possibly could. They have a climate smart committee. They're checking all their boxes. They're dealing with their farms. They're doing regenerative farming. And so I think being in the big cities, being in our industry, we tend to think that we we really are in a bubble. And I just am coming to say, hey, guys, actually, people are doing stuff. And not only are they doing stuff, they're doing really interesting stuff and they're getting their hands dirty and they're doing that transition that we all want to see. Now, is it reflected in the PPM that we're seeing globally? No, but the change is afoot and um, it's deep and it's broad. And um, I was surprised because when I first, they asked me to join the climate committee in my little town, I thought, oh my God, you know, I'm going to have to do a lot of education, blah, blah, blah. They had already blown through like almost everything they possibly do. And so now they're looking at biochar and everything else. So I just want to suggest on this call that, you know, we leave our, our silos and get out in the world and actually look at what's happening because 
you know, from where you sit in Los Angeles and where I live there for most of my life, you know, it is the apocalypse. But like when you go elsewhere, there is good things happening. And yes, is there, and Michael Mann can talk, you know, about this and Jennifer and everyone about how long it takes to turn things around. Okay. Yes. It's going to come down. We're going to fix this. Do we have leaders politically that are not sounding the way we want them to sound? Probably. But I'm looking at local communities that have watched our stuff, refer to it. I mean, I'm not going to argue about box office and how much money everyone made in our own metrics in the Hollywood world of, oh, is it famous? Is it referred to in all the publications? But let me tell you something. They've all watched our stuff in the tiniest towns all across America and the world. And I've been places that are completely remote and have seen all of the stuff we've all made. So you know, yeah. Is it like, you know, freaking Marvel movie status, 150 million to, you know, no, <laughs> but it's worked. And I'm not even defending my password. I mean, it's true. It's very niche, but you know what? I did an interview and last thing I'll say with Damon Chantela, Damien Chantela, who basically said, you don't need the mass of humanity to change. You only need like 24%, 24.8%. He's done like deep work on the theory of change. You only need 24% of humanity to actually think a thought or do something. And so, you know, it's 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 underway. That's how I look at it. I got to say, usually I want to cry myself to sleep at night after doing these kinds of talks. But this one is like particularly um, encouraging, which is great. I want to hear from Rebecca Tickle next. Rebecca is an example of somebody who is actually um, getting her hands dirty. She has a pretty cool venture, which is a combo of a film studio and a farm that is centered on regenerative agriculture. And I know she would like to chime in. I I, I think I might be one of the people um, that's guilty of telling stories that focus on heroes or um, that focus sort of on the the essay um storytelling versus the personal journey but really uh my husband Josh Tekel and myself we have made 20 films now on the climate and now we started telling stories about um carbon emissions and our first film fuel all the, several films on oil um and eventually that got us to telling stories about soil so if you can imagine anything more dull than telling stories about oil then you know we moved to soil and you know the expression dull is dirt but honestly it's the most exciting thing that I, it's my, you know, for us, it's our life's purpose now is telling stories about soil <clears throat> and our film, Kiss the Ground, um, which was an essay advocacy documentary. It did have many heroes in it, um, including farmer Gabe Brown, who we continue telling his story in our new film called Common Ground that's in theaters now um, and playing in DC this week. Kiss the Ground reached a billion, over a billion people. It was shown 39 million American school kids. Um, it was actually shown to the USDA, to the entire USDA. We used to, with our oil documentaries, we try to like break into the USDA. And then they actually invited us to show the film there, which was incredible. Not, not literally break in, but you, you get the idea. And um, they credited Kiss the Ground as being a catalyst for them committing $20 billion to soil health. And, um, you know, as far as we're concerned, soil health is the most important 
conversation story that we could possibly telling right now be telling right now. Um, you know, you can't always talk to people about climate change, but you certainly can talk to them about the weather, especially farmers. My dad being one of them, he's a legacy farmer. Um, I can trace back agriculture in my family back to the 1700s, and it's agriculture done the wrong way. And so when agriculture is done conventionally, either with tillage or with chemicals, um, that emits a tremendous amount of carbon into the atmosphere. And my dad was participating in that. And he was like, why are you telling stories about farming? Um, and then eventually he started sending me photos of his regenerative organic produce. And it was never like, you were right. This is the way to go. It was just suddenly started shifting through how proud he was and how healthy his soil became and in how nutrient dense the food was that he was growing. And this is the kind of um, thing that we need this message through storytelling that we have to get around the world because we've lost two thirds of the world's topsoil, as you guys know. And um, we've desertified one third of the planet and no amount of arguing over carbon emission reduction or politics is going to regenerate the deserts and restore ecosystems and make it rain in the desert like some of the stories we tell in our film. And we've been talking about sustainability for so long. And actually, that's not going to get us there. You know, we have to regenerate as we continue to grow our population, as the cal caloric demand continues to increase, you know, through storytelling, we have to bust, bust that myth that we have to farm in a specific way to feed the world using chemicals. I mean, it couldn't be further from the truth. We want to feed the world. We have to learn how to feed our region, feed our community, and then we learn to feed the world. Um, and I actually was just in UAE where COP28 will be taking place earlier this year, working with them to see how we can regenerate the desert. Um, and the only way we can regenerate the desert is through regenerative practices. And so we make our films here at our little ranch in Ojai, California, in Ventura County, which is an epicenter of some of the worst farming practices. In fact, it's called The Last Plantation. It was called that by Cesar Chavez. Um, you can imagine the conversations that we're having with our neighbors about how to make this transition. And my hope for COP28 is that there's less of a focus on arguing about politics or science and more of an emphasis on talking about how we can bring those dead deserts back to life where we can draw down and sequester all the carbon that we need to to stabilize the climate prior to continuing to see massive climate refugees and war and conflict over resources. All of this can be healed. And I don't mean to oversimplify it, but I truly believe that we can heal this when we start to heal our land, when we start take, taking care of our soil. And so that's what our films are about. And I know that all of you are brilliant storytellers as well and are, are working in this field. But my hope is that we really focus more on the solution, more on the pathway out of it so that we can make that change and have that agreement that this is the road forward and do it in time to stabilize the climate. Something I would love to see more of is uh, data research like what you're referring to about your storytelling project and then the USDA's response. I don't think that we have enough of that out there. And it's very, very hard to fund uh, climate communications. There's a great uh, story by Sammy Roth in today's Boiling Point about the burden put on scientists, people like Michael Mann. I have no idea how often you get phone calls asked to do this kind of thing, but there is increasing demand for, um, for 
climate stories, but where is the financial support that helps back up people that want to do that work? So maybe I that's was, next. Yeah, I was thinking there should be even a think tank. I was actually thinking of putting one in Europe that studies impact of these movies because the like Rebecca was saying, I've experienced the same with my. I mean, the impact is deep and broad and long. The long tail on this stuff is twenty years. I'm still getting screenings of my first movie. Um, people, I whole countries have said they've gone and create NGOs off our movies, but it's all anecdotal. It's extremely hard to know how to track this stuff, except, you know, I got a plan. Yeah. Good. (laughs) Well, first of all, we know how to do that. that. (laughs) Rather we have Kate, we have Kate who does tons of measurement on that. I think what I'm going to do after this is I'm going to work on a, um, a survey that I will send out to you all about anecdotal impacts of some of your projects and maybe gather some information. Maybe you have more than anecdotal information. Maybe you've been measuring. I'll put something together. I've been capturing some of this on the side and been thinking about what kind of a form could this take so it could be useful to others so that um, uh, people like Rosanna, when she's doing her job, uh, Matt, when he's doing his job, that we we can we could draw on this a little bit if needed. And even if we can't use it in, say, reporting, it's in the back of our minds and we can talk about it in these rooms. Uh, speaking of language, I have a question for you, Eliza, that will maybe take us back to Michael, maybe take us back to David. Uh, Eliza Barkley, am I saying that right? Barkley? Yeah. Okay, great. Eliza Barkley is the, uh, is an opinion editor at the New York Times. And I have to ask you about, uh, an opinion piece I read not long ago about the Pope and the Pope's call for greater urgency, more action around climate change. And in that opinion piece, he was referred to as a climate alarmist. And I'm wondering how you deal with this in the opinion pages, how you parse the difference between what is an opinion and what is false. Um, okay, that's an interesting question. <laughs> um, and I, I also, uh, if you don't mind, I, I wanted to respond to something that Kate said earlier, too. But, um, but I, I will first answer that question. Um, I mean, we so every single opinion piece that we publish is rigorously fact checked. So we, we, um, we solicit arguments from people, opinions from people, but they have to be backed, supported by evidence. So um, we wouldn't publish a false, or like an opinion that couldn't be supported by evidence, I guess is just the, the short answer to that question. So the writer refers to the Pope and the Pope's stance on climate change. As a result of the Pope's stance on climate change, the writer refers to the Pope as a climate alarmist. And I was wondering, is that true is is that actually a fact that the pope is a climate alarmist is it an opinion that can fairly stand how do you deal with language around that um that's an interesting question i mean i i presume that uh like i said i was not involved with this piece um but i think it is clearly david wallace wells's opinion um I I will have to see if he supported it with evidence. Um, but I, I'm sorry, like like I think that we would we would interrogate like a question like a, a line like that and make sure it is supported by evidence, like in fact checking. Um, but the the but what I was going to respond to earlier uh in terms of Kate's points uh was just that 
in terms of like personal stories, um, one thing that I have done, worked on a lot this year is um, like essays from people's uh, lived experience on climate change. And in fact, interestingly, some of the, the most popular pieces with readers that we have published this year have been um, personal stories where the writer is you know grappling with their uh their own like questions about climate change and also their experience and it's so we publish all kinds of op-eds like from scientists and and experts but uh one of the most popular pieces like of the entire year was uh terry tempest williams essay about great salt lake and uh she was you know responding to the news that great salt lake may disappear in five years she has a very personal connection to it also the um the the church of latter-day saints she's a former mormon the church has a role to play in um you know returning water to the lake and um it was just fascinating for me to see how her piece which was grappling with like this really scary prospect that the lake disappears it dries up that the toxic dust in the bottom the lake bed blows into the city of salt lake like a very very scary prospect for the people of salt lake city and 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 really utahns and that um she did not she kind of was like not like looking directly at this threat and then also adding in a lot of like personal um you know, memory from the lake and also what she's observed with the, with the wildlife and the biodiversity. Um, and it was just really wonderful to see that, that piece, which was just very, it's very difficult read, <laughs> but resonates so widely with readers. So um, I've published a number of other pieces this year from different people in different parts of the country experiencing climate impacts, Vermont, uh, Minnesota and the wildfire smoke. Um, and each one, you know, the writers are filtering some kind of like bigger question that maybe a lot of other people have and then making an argument about it. In Vermont, the case was there is no way, <laughs> even in Vermont, like you cannot escape climate change. Like this is a place that maybe a lot of people thought of as a refuge and it, and it just frankly isn't. Um, but anyway, the point is, um, I, it's been gratifying and really instructive to see those pieces resonate, in fact, maybe much more broadly than than a lot of other types of policy and science uh, essays that I have published. I think this is such an important point because it seems that we have come to believe that the only people that can uh, that have license to communicate about climate change are scientists. And while obviously that is extraordinarily important, I think what I'm hearing from you is that first-person stories from people who are not necessarily scientists, but who are um, who are expressing their lived experience, those are really registering. Exactly. Uh, David, we haven't heard from you next. You have your, uh, let's go to you next. You have your hand raised. Okay, well, Allison, thank you for organizing the call. It's great to be on a call with all of you. Um, let me leave the science to uh, uh, Michael and all of you who are scientifically credentialed. I'm a political scientist by training. And if we turn the coin of climate science over, the flip side of it is democracy and governance. And so it's good to know that we can 
uh, resolve the crisis or manage it to some degree. And I appreciate the work of all of you in this and agree with a great deal that's been said. But on the other side of the uh, coin, democratic institutions are under attack. We're close to a government shutdown. Uh, it isn't just here. It's uh, all around the world. Fascism is, is on the rise. I think we're at a razor's edge. We could get through this. And I, uh, having read Michael's work for years, I think the uh, I, I agree with his conclusions. But the the big if there is that if we get our act together and do the things that government has to do and develop a constituency, and I think Layla is exactly right. I think out in the, the hinterland, there are lots of people who are ready to, to do it. The fact is we haven't galvanized a political movement yet to do what is necessary to be done. And without that, uh, I think we're, uh, the, the picture gets very gloomy. I'm willing to accept a very positive view about the science and what the science tells about climate change, but I don't think we're ready yet politically to do the things that we have to do. And uh, we're coming up on an election in 2024. Donald Trump, to be uh, partisan here for a minute, Donald Trump has said very clearly what he'll do. And if he's elected, then uh, I think the U.S. involvement in, in this effort is going to suffer dramatically. And I think if I read uh, the science correctly, we don't have a lot of time for much more sideways motion. We have to be very directed. Uh, we may have five years or 10 years. I'll leave that to other people to make those judgments. But I think the real battle ahead, the elephant in the room, so to speak, is that nasty word politics. And we don't like to talk about it much, but I think we we were going to have to build a constituency for the long haul, for the changes that have to be made. Uh, and they're going to be some sacrifice. Uh, the S word is one that we, uh, we don't like to talk about in politics. I think we'll have to begin to talk about this. And uh, uh, in thinking about how to communicate, uh, we're caught between uh, people can't handle the truth. And uh, all I have to offer is blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Uh, Winston Churchill's phrase. So I, I think that I, I like to interject the words politics and governance into this. We've got a lot of work to do to repair democratic institutions and begin to reinvent what government does. And I'm optimistic that if we want to do it, we can do it. I don't think we're short of ideas. And I, I agree with all of you on the call that are uh, optimistic about the constituency out there that's ready to be galvanized. But the hard work of galvanizing and building that global movement uh, is yet to be done. This special Road to COP28 podcast was produced by the DSR Network, which is solely responsible for its content. Roundtable discussions were recorded live as they happened. The series was sponsored in part by a grant from the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates, hosts of the COP28 meetings, to take place later this year. However, the content of this discussion, like all DSR Network productions, is entirely editorially independent and the views presented were solely those of the participants. The executive producer of this podcast was Chris Cotmore. The producer of this podcast was Riley Fessler. This has been a DSR Network production.